Well, it's just one of the most exciting things to hear the diversity of ministries and opportunities. These wonderful people are going to two places that couldn't be more diverse and different and for the same objective, to be living proof of a loving God to a watching world, whether it's in the Dominican Republic, whether it's in the Arabian Peninsula, it's the same message that changes lives. It's the gospel message that's changed your lives, most of you here. Is that not true? But since your life has been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know each of you with intimacy, but I'll bet this is true. I'll bet you're finding the Christian life to be a struggle. Is that not true? It's kind of tough to be a Christian today. I don't know if you knew this. Things started off maybe differently at the point of conversion, but it gets to be a little more challenging and difficult. Well, don't feel bad about that. We read when last we were together in Romans chapter 7 that one as esteemed as the Apostle Paul admitted to his struggle. In fact, he wrote the most transparent autobiographical revelation perhaps in all of his epistles in Romans chapter 7 and he essentially said I'm in trouble I'm struggling I'm aware of the presence of sin in my life I'm trying to live up to the standards of almighty God in my own strength and I I'm not making it I really need help and in Romans chapter 8 just a few verses tonight we'll see that Paul found that help and the good news about it is that, that the help Paul found is available to us as well In fact, there's not one helper, but two. We have a helper in heaven. What's his name? Yeah, that's the Lord Jesus. He's ascended, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But we not only have a helper in heaven, we also have a helper here on earth. How would you refer to him? You, that's the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'm not making this up. The Lord Jesus, before he ascended, actually told us about all this. And he did it in this context. He had followers. They were very committed, as I hope we are, quite devoted to him. And they were perplexed and puzzled by what he said about how he's leaving. He's going to, he's going to depart from them. They didn't have full comprehension about what he meant. They weren't happy with it all. And to sort of comfort them, he said this in John chapter 16, verse 7. He said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, who you identified rightly as the Holy Spirit, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Lord said it's actually a good thing. It doesn't feel good to you now, he was saying to his followers. But I'm telling you, it is a good thing that I go because in my absence, you will have the presence of a second helper. Oh, I'll be helping you from on high. I'll be interceding for you all the time. But I want you to have a resident, indwelling helper, the Holy Spirit. This is to your advantage, said he. Think about this. While the Lord was here... He was confined to a body much like ours. Therefore, he was not omnipresent. Almighty God is omnipresent, but the Lord Jesus voluntarily set aside some of his divine prerogatives so as to reduce himself, so as to become enfleshed and identify with us. So wherever the Lord Jesus was during his earthly ministry, That's where he was, but nowhere else. When he was resurrected and ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, now the very presence of God is in every believer, in every place, 
at every time. That's why the Lord said, it's to your advantage that I go, because I will send a very indwelling helper who's exactly like me. He's divine. He's fully God, just as I am, and he will live in you, you being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, is discovering anew the ministration of the Holy Spirit. And he moves from depression to exaltation when he realized, I know why the Christian life is such a struggle. I know why I'm not making a victorious go of it. I know why this is happening. It's because though I believe I was saved by faith, I think I need to be sanctified by my own works. And Paul said, my works are deficient. I keep running into the reality of sin in my life. I need help, and the help is in the form of the Holy Spirit. So he moves from despair to rejoicing. In fact, this is very dramatically demonstrated. You don't have to look further than the first verse of Romans chapter 8. Look what it says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. I'm telling you, Paul is doing flip-flops. He cannot control himself. He grieved over the reality of sin in his life. In fact, do you remember how he referred to himself? He called himself a wretched being, a wretch. He said, I am a wretch. This is post-conversion. He's already saved. But the closer he got to Almighty God, the, the more he realized the power and presence of sin in his life for so long as he lived under its authority and did not tie into the very Spirit of God indwelling him in him all along. He felt self-condemnation. By the way, that's the worst kind of condemnation, self-condemnation. I'll bet you it's a malady that inflicts most of us in here. There are times when we can't stand to be in our own skin, even though we're saved and redeemed. There's this pervasive sense of guilt and shame, and we can't shake it. We sort of know we're saved by grace, but we don't think we stack up. We don't think we're getting good points with God. We think we're on the outs with him. And not only that, we think everybody else in a place such as this is closer to God than we are. It's self Kind of, Paul was afflicted by that particular malady. And so for him to begin this new chapter with this declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation. I'm telling you, he's going crazy. I just know it because he's a Jewish guy and we Jewish people, we go crazy over good news. This is really no condemnation. That means no condemnation from God. And if there's no condemnation from God, there's no basis for self-condemnation. And so this one who concluded he was nothing but a wretch, who will set me free? Remember how he, he, he said that in chapter 7? When he discovered the freedom he had in Christ and the Lord's indwelling presence in his life, he said there is therefore now no condemnation. You see the word therefore? Does your Bible have that? Therefore, it's, it's key. You know what it implies? It implies that Paul has come to a conclusion here based upon something he previously declared. Something preceded this conclusion, 
And on the basis of what Paul previously said, he now says, therefore, based upon what came earlier, there is therefore now no condemnation. So whenever you see that word therefore, you've got to back up and you ask yourself the question, what is the therefore there for? I think the answer is to be found by going pretty far back into Romans chapter 5. We were there 16 years ago, as I recall. I was just a boy. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 18, is one of the only other places in the entire New Testament that has the same word condemnation in it. And that's what gives me the clue that Paul uh, is referring us back to Romans 5.18, which says, so then, as through one transgression, that's a reference to Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. So then, through one transgression, there resulted, here's the same word, condemnation, you see? The same word we're reading about in Romans 8.1 is introduced to us back in Romans 5.18. Through, through Adam's transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, whose act of righteousness was that? Christ. Through Adam's act of unrighteousness, condemnation. Through Christ's act of righteousness, Paul says, there resulted justification of life to all men. Based on that, I think he now rushes forward to Romans 8, 1 and says, therefore, based on the fact that what Christ did for us through one act of righteousness has obtained for us justification, a legal pronouncement of being acquitted and pardoned, therefore, there is now no condemnation. That's good news, isn't it? But not really, uh, because it's not good news for everybody. It doesn't apply to everybody. It's only true, as the next phrase says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So much for what's called universal salvation, which means ultimately we're all going to make it to heaven. It does not matter what kind of life we lived here. It does not matter if we lived life apart from the giver of life. He grades on a curve. He hasn't given us commandments. He's given us suggestions. Ultimately, everyone's getting to heaven because that's just the way God, that seems to fly in the face of this precondition. There is therefore now no condemnation, but only for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the deal. For as long as you and I were in union with first man, Adam, we were condemned. So long as we were connected to Adam, we experienced condemnation. But now, by faith, since we have established a union with Christ, we are free from condemnation. Christ has become, for Christians the sphere of safety for all who are in union with him by faith. It's a sphere of safety from the wrath of God. Here's the deal. There's only two kinds of people in the world. 
those who remain in union with Adam, those whose primary union is with Christ. That's what separates us. It's not black, white, male, female, rich, poor, Jew or Gentile. I know we divide along those lines, but God doesn't. There's two grand divisions in the human population. Those who are united with Adam, their inheritance is condemnation due to his sin, which we inherited. Or those who by faith are united with Christ, who are in Christ, and theirs by grace through faith is justification of life. No condemnation, which leads to this very, very important question. Who would you say you are united to? Who are you in union with? Is it Adam or, only two options, is it Adam or is it Christ Jesus? I hope, it's not just hope, I prayed like the Dickens before tonight, that before tonight ends, not one person would leave here without being able with assurance to say, I am primarily connected, principally connected I am connected with Christ Jesus. I used to trace my connection to Adam, first man, but now I trace my connection to second Adam. Why? Because through first Adam, I inherited his sin and the penalty condemnation. But through second Adam, the Lord Jesus, I inherited his righteousness and the verdict of not guilty, free and pardoned. My prayer is that before tonight is over, you would decide by faith to make your primary connection to the Lord Jesus, thus severing your hitherto primary union to Adam. The consequences of who you belong to are of eternal significance. It's really, really, really important that you be able to leave here tonight, head up, shoulders back, saying, I deserve condemnation. Nobody is saying I don't deserve it, but it will not befall me because it already befell the Lord Jesus. I accept him by faith. I am now in Christ, and by virtue of my union with him, I could say, as did Paul, therefore, there is now no condemnation for me, for now I, by faith, that means trust, am in Christ Jesus. I got to tell you something. All this is hard for us, even as Christians, to accept that there is no condemnation from God for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And I'll tell you why it's so hard. It's because we think our acceptance with God is based on our performance and we also think that our performance as Christians is subpar. How many here feel like they pray enough, study the Bible enough, memorize scripture enough, fast enough, share your faith enough, give enough, go enough? Oh, my goodness. We're all weighted down with an awareness of our subpar performance. Based upon that, we think we're on the outs with God, but here's our problem. Our primary reason for being accepted by God has nothing to do with our performance. It has everything to do with our position. I love the words, in Christ Jesus. Could I tell you something? The most unfaithful Christian in the house tonight 
is still one of whom it can and will be said, when we stand before Almighty God, there is no condemnation for you, for you are in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, this is hard for us to get because there's nothing in our life experience that we could compare it to where Almighty God would say, in spite of your flaws, in spite of your limitations, even in spite of your sins, in spite of your unreliability and unfaithfulness, in spite of your lukewarmness and half-heartedness, in spite of your worldliness and all the rest, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Wait just a second. Isn't that a dangerous teaching? Good night. If I get a uh, clean bill of health and I get a, a, a pass, won't that motivate me to sin all the more? Oh, no. Oh, no. There's no greater motivation known to humankind than to be motivated relationally by the love of someone who will not let you go. I got to tell you, externally imposed laws, rules, and regulations cannot change our behavior like one unconditional loving relationship on the part of an otherwise un unapproachably holy God who says, I'll take you just as you are, warts and all. I know not only about your past, I know about your present, and I know the stuff you're going to do tomorrow that you haven't even done yet. And I tell you, if you're in Christ, I have taken my righteousness, put it on your side of the account. I've adopted you in my family. Now, I may not approve of your behavior. Your performance as a Christian may indeed be subpar, but your position as an adopted son or daughter could never be improved upon, could never be forfeited or minimized. It's always just as it should be. If I have you, because you have had me by faith, I will never unhave you, even at times when you want to unhave me. I have to tell you, folks, if you're not motivated by your in Christness, the Christian life is going to get to be a drag. It's going to be a labor, but not of love. It's just going to be a labor, just a labor, just a labor. So we condemn ourselves based our, on our inadequate. By the way, those of us who are, it's all of us, who are subject to self-condemnation, you know what in essence we're saying? We're saying, God, thank you for saving me, but apparently you didn't get the job entirely done. You didn't save me enough. So I got to help you by, by beating on me. Thanks for the crucifixion. I understand it was pretty painful, but apparently not enough. So I have to pain myself. I have to add because I don't think what you did is total and complete. And so self-condemnation, which looks like what a humble person does is really what a prideful person does. It's a prideful person who says, though God makes a clear declaration that he doesn't condemn me, my standards are higher than even God's. You may have left me off the hook, but I will not let myself off the hook. My standards are higher than yours. I got to tell you, memorize Romans 8, 1 and be set free. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I know what you're saying. But aren't there consequences for our sin? Of course there are. I didn't say there are no consequences for sin. I just said there's no condemnation for our sin. Could I illustrate? This looks like a wooden spoon. But it was an instrument of fear for my three boys when they were young. 
<laughs> so when they crossed the line, I always had this uh, within reach and within view. And when I went to get it, my wife had one of these uh, plate holders in the kitchen, and I put this right on the top, right there where I can see it. So when they were doing what they shouldn't do and not stopping, in spite of my exhortation to do so, I would calmly, very slowly, get up and make my way into the kitchen to the plate holder. They'd be watching. The trembling would begin. I would get it, and I would go like this, one at a time. And I would apply the consequence of their misbehavior. By the way, if you use something like this, it's, it's the wrist action that you got. It's like this, like this. You don't have to do it. It's just a boom, like that. Now, they used to tell me, they said, Dad, uh, we loved it when Mom got the spoon. Because, first of all, she'd use the wrong side like this. She would do this side. And they said she had no wrist action. And we would make like a loud noise. Oh! But it didn't hurt at all. That, yeah. So here's the deal. When I would use that spoon, it was uh, a response to a violation they had committed against parental authority and household rules, for sure. But I didn't condemn them. I applied the consequence of their misbehavior, but I didn't condemn them. I disciplined them, but I would never divorce myself from them. I would never unson them. I would never undad myself as being their dad. Neither would you. Well, let's give God just a little bit more credit for crying out loud. If that's how we do our kids and grandkids, can't we permit him to do us that way? Of course there's a consequence for sin, but don't make it what it isn't. It's never that God says, I've had it up to here. I've had enough. You are no longer my son or daughter. You are never you're no longer born anew. You're no longer adopted into my family. You're no longer an heir of salvation. You're no longer in union with me. You're no longer in Christ Jesus. Wait a second. If we are legitimately by faith in Christ Jesus, then God will no longer condemn us. Then he will condemn his own son. That's what it means to be in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus was fully the recipient of our sin, condemned for it once and for all, never again. Therefore, to be in Christ Jesus is to be in the safest place on earth and in heaven because the Father is finished judging the Son. He will not be the recipient of condemnation anymore. If I'm in Christ Jesus, neither will I be the recipient of condemnation. Consequenced for wrongdoing? Of course. Most of us spend most of our lives, let's face it, trying to undo the consequences of sinful decisions, behaviors that we have engaged in. But don't make it more than it is. That never equates to God is through with us. Condemnation is never a consequence of sin if you're a Christian. We are in Christ and Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But wait a minute. Shouldn't we feel guilty about sin when we sin? Shouldn't we feel guilty? The answer is sort of. 
I'll tell you what I mean. When we sin, yes, we ought to feel the guilt of a child disobeying a loving parent. But we should never feel the guilt of a criminal standing before a judge. Can you see the difference? Which is it for you? Absolutely. We should also feel bad, be disappointed, even feel guilt that we sinned against our Father who loves us as sons and daughters. But we should never feel the guilt of a criminal standing before a judge in a court of law. If that's you, you have not been fully gospelized. You've not been fully good news. You don't get Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the guilt a son or daughter of God should experience, we could call it relational guilt, but not legal guilt. Relational. I feel bad that I sinned against the one who loves me most. But there is no guilty verdict. There's no law, no statute that God will hold up against me and use against me. That's changed. The whole relationship has changed. Now, folks, I apologize to you because I've shared this illustration, I think, like a lot of times. But I have to do it now because I think it so perfectly fits the point. Here's the illustration. It's actually true. Some time ago, my mother had a birthday. By the way, uh, in a few weeks, Lord willing, my mother will experience her 98th birthday. 98 years. Yeah. Pretty amazing. She's ready to go home. Isn't that something? Some of us are given a lesser span of time here. Some of us a lengthier span. Why? We'll find out one day. Who knows? Make the most of what he gives you. That's all I can say for now. Anyway, I forgot one of my mother's birthdays. I forgot. I just forgot. This is not a good thing. <coughs> Especially since, I don't know if I told you this, but my mother is Jewish. So you do not want to forget the birthday of a Jewish mother. Oh, man. So I didn't get a call in which she condemned and criticized. She said, uh, Stuart? This is mom, like I don't know. Um, how are you? I'm fine. Are you sure? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, is everything okay? Everything is okay. Are you sure? Ma, you're killing me. Everything is okay. What's up? Well, it's just not like you. What do you mean it's not like you? You know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, I had a little thing the other day called a birthday. <laughs> and I went, oh, mom, everything is okay. No excuse. Just forgot. I feel terrible. Happy belated birthday. I love you. By the way, thank you for birthing me. And thank you for the will. Thank you for including me in the will. Um, okay, so when all that ended, I felt guilty. It was relational guilt. 
it wasn't the guilt of a legal tribunal. I'm not going to jail. I'm not convicted of anything. My mother didn't even hint at distance at, at the fact that she might distance herself from me. There was no condemnation. The consequence of sin was my own discomfort with it, you see. It was because of a relationship. If there was a law that says, thou shalt remember your mother's birthday under threat of death, it would not be a stronger motivation than the motivation which is ordinarily there by virtue of the relationship. Why? Someone births you, puts up with you, change your diapers, feeds you, takes care of you, stands with you no matter what, prays for you, gives you the sincere impression that you are loved without condition and that nothing can cause a separation between you and she. Someone like that who you let down causes such discomfort that you don't ever want to do it again. Can you see the difference in the motivation? It's just, no, it, it should be just like this with those of us who have Almighty God not just as omnipotent, most high God, transcendent deity who is a consuming fire, but also those of us who have him as Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa, on whose lap we can crawl up at any time, no matter what our state of affairs are. The God who will not let us go. The God who sought us out. The God who watches us, cares for us. He doesn't grade us. He charts the cars for us. He provides for us. He uses all things, even painful things for the good. The God who promised in advance a dwelling that is not time-bound. It is a mansion made in heaven. The God who said, I'm so excited. I can't wait for you to make it here. What a party. What a supper we're going to have together. The God who says, I'm going to wipe away. I know you're crying. The God who says, I'll personally wipe away every tear from your eye. That God has caused such a relational bond. That's the motivation to make us holier, more sanctified Christian. It comes from the inside through his spirit in us. A constant reminder, oh no, you don't want to disappoint, sin against, turn from the one who loves you most. There's no one who loves you like that. His love was out, is without condition. The law provides a motivation from the outside. God's spirit provides a motivation from the inside. Do you sense yourself being motivated that way? Listen, if not, you may not be born anew. You have to see evidence of a new inclination and motivation in your life. I didn't say perfection. I said new motivation. Not only that, new power. If God indwells us, shouldn't there be a reservoir of power we didn't have before. Shouldn't this struggle against sin come with a greater measure of victory than ever before? When we fought the battle, as did Paul in Romans 7, in the flesh, wretched man that I am. But when we submit to the promptings of God in us, his spirit in us, there should be a greater measure of victory in living the Christian life than you ever have experienced. If you're not seeing these things, do you mind me telling you, you may not be born again. Why do I keep saying that stuff? 
because the United States seems to be increasingly filled with those who call themselves Christians, but that's not possible. Look at the fruit. Look at the lifestyle. That can't be true. Good night. If we had one-tenth of the Christians, all the Poles say we do, we wouldn't be in the moral morass we're in today in the United States. Are you kidding me? <clears throat> Folks, I beseech you, move from chapter 7 to chapter 8. And if you can't smoothly move from chapter 7 to chapter 8, then you may not be born again. If you're not born again, that means you're still in union with Adam and you've not yet really established a union with Christ. Before you leave tonight, we want to help you. We want to talk you through that. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ Jesus. Do you see the word now? Therefore, there is now. You know what that word now means? It means things are different now for those who are in Christ than they were then in the past. You and I have had a past, but now we have a now. And regardless of the past, spotted though it may be, there has to be a line of demarcation between what was and now is. If you don't see that line of demarcation, you may not have crossed it by faith. You may not be a born again believer. If you don't sense a difference in your life, brought about by the Holy Spirit in your life, it could be that the Holy Spirit is not in your life, for crying out loud. Therefore, if anyone is, here's the phrase again, in Christ, he is what kind of a creation? New. The old things have passed away. New things have come. If you can't give me your top ten list of new things that have come about since you accepted Christ, then you need to talk to somebody. Now I'm, making, I'm messing around with top ten. Give me one. One spirit-produced new thing in your life, and that's all the assurance you need of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. But if you can't point to one, you may be coming to church, but you may not be in Christ Jesus. I've got to tell you something. That word now ought to bring us great relief, especially when we sin. We sin. We're on the outs with God, we think. We lose sight of the totality of Christ's finished work on the cross. Since God is angry with us, I suppose we should distance ourselves from him. Nobody wants to hang around with someone who you perceive not to like you. If you think God doesn't like you, you don't want to spend time with him. So you start drifting more and more away from But the word now ought to give great comfort uh, uh, soon after you, you and I sin. <laughs> now! Things are different. Now, there is no condemnation for those who are in, in Christ Jesus. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ Jesus? Could I tell you something? For those who are in Adam, uh, their judgment day is before them. For those who are in Christ Jesus, your judgment day is past. <laughs> it already took place when he was judged for sin. Everyone is accountable to God. For those apart from Christ, judgment day awaits. For those in Christ, judgment day is past history. By the way, the word condemn in Greek, that's what this was written in Greek, is two words. And the two words are down and to judge. To judge down. That's what condemn means, to judge down. It was used with reference to the Roman emperor. Prisoners would be brought before him. He'd sit up on a big old 
seat of judgment, the judgment seat. He'd hear their pleas in their cases. He would either judge them up, that means they're acquitted, or he would judge them down, that means they are condemned. Could I tell you something? If you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, the Almighty Judge, his Father, will never judge you down. Why? Because the Father's judgment is not going to come down upon those who've accepted his Son because his judgment has already come down upon his Son for those who have sinned but are now in Christ Jesus. But wait. I keep saying, but wait, because I'm anticipating all of the objections you may have to what I'm saying, <laughs> and this will save you sending emails and me having to read them. So some might be saying, but you're way off base, Stuart, because it is true that Christians are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged. You are correct, but they will not ever be judged with respect to salvation. We will be judged with respect to how we have lived as saved people. Big difference. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The issue for Christians who stand at the judgment seat of Christ, the issue for them is not condemnation. It will be rewards or loss of rewards. But folks, even loss of rewards does not mean loss of salvation. Don't confuse the two. This sounds a little too good to be true, doesn't it? How could it be true? Verse 2, the law of the spirit of life. See the word law? It doesn't always mean the same thing when you read it in the Bible. You have to really kind of slow down, study, and figure out the context. It actually means principle. There was a principle once which characterized our life. The principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a new principle for Christians. It's called the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It set us free from the previous principle, which is the principle of sin and death. At one point, we were characterized by sin, which led to spiritual and ultimately physical death. That's just the way it is. We thought we, we sinned in thought, word, and deed. Most of the time, we didn't even know we were doing it. It just came so naturally. Not only that, it didn't even bother us. We were in sin's atmosphere, domain, and authority. But something new happened upon union with Christ by faith. Now there's a new principle operative in our life. And it's not the command authority by sin. It's the command authority of God through his Holy Spirit, known not as the spirit of death, but the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I was a chaplain in the military um, a long time ago uh, in World War I or something. Not maybe that far, but, but a long time ago. And I remember I, uh, I was under a particular command, and, and com the commander had authority over me and everybody else. That commander had a, a notion of how we ought to do the mission. And while I was under that commander's authority, I submitted uh, as a chaplain to his philosophy. That's what you do in the military. But then I got orders out, 
and I was transferred. I got another assignment, and I was under a different command. And that commander had an entirely different philosophy of how we should do our mission. Every once in a while, I felt uncomfortable because I, I, I heard myself thinking inside, uh, yeah, but the, uh, you know, Colonel so-and-so would never have done it that way. And I realized, why am I even thinking about Colonel so-and-so? I'm not under his authority anymore. I got written orders. It says you are ordered to report. That's what it says. It doesn't say if you'd like it, you can pack up. You are ordered. You are transferred from one domain of authority to an entirely different one to such an extent that the prior command had no authority over you. That's what verse 2 says. You were once, and I, under the authority of sin, self, and Satan. That's it. You marched to the orders of indwelling, unchecked, unbridled sin. But you got orders when you came united with Christ. A new commander-in-chief said, I own you now. I bought you now. I'm moving in. You're under different command authority. You're no longer obligated to sin. You're no longer constrained to do what it tells you to do. I have given you not only permission, but the power to say no to that commander who no longer has command authority over you. That's how there could be no condemnation because there's a new commander in town. In fact, in our lives, it's the Lord Jesus and we submit to him. And then it says in verse 4, all this happened so that the requirement of law might be fulfilled in us. Notice, it doesn't say all this happened that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled by us. It doesn't say by us. It says in us. If it said by us, we're back to square one. We got to work hard to live up to God's standards. We have to improve ourselves. We have to make ourselves holy. We have to clean up our own act. One little word makes a world of difference. All this happened, it says, so that the requirement of law, God's law, might be fulfilled in us. How? By God's spirit dwelling in us and by the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. He condemned sin in his flesh. It's already been done. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. As with Paul, so too with us. Sin dwelt in his life, so too it's in ours. But don't forget, Almighty God is in our life as well. We no longer are obligated to respond to sin and the law, now we respond to the leading of God's spirit in us. Look, today I got up in the morning. There was no law, no statute, no external authority making me do what I then did. Something in me moved me to call someone. Well, it was one of you, actually. And I'm, could I be frank with you? I don't know why. I just had the sense it was not in any externally imposed code of ethics obligations, you know. This is what you got to do today to please God. It was nothing. It was a new command authority on the inside. Kind of messed me up a little bit. I'm getting started, getting the day going. I got a million things to do. Got my do list. But I got something for you to do. I need you to call somebody. Now, I did not hear him audibly. I'll tell you why. I didn't have to. <laughs> 
because his spirit in me was loud enough. Now, I had a choice. I could quench the spirit. That means you don't comply. And on this particular day, I decided to comply. And I made the call, and I can't tell you what happened, but I knew when it was over, holy Toledo, that was a God thing. That was a right-on-time God smacking one of his kids around who was off and ready to go and work my agenda for the day and saying, but I got an agenda for you. It's a different kind of motivation when you're a Christian than we have ever, ever had before. The law has been replaced by an intimate, personal relationship with God. Now we follow the proddings of his spirit in us. It's entirely different. Listen, I close with this. There was a, an ancient king, an Iranian, Iranian, Iranian king, did I get it right? Iranian king. Persian king, okay, sorry, big deal. Okay, Persian, there's a Persian king named Xerxes. Did I get that right? No, not even that. Okay. His name was Fred. In English, it's Fred. <laughs> and, uh, remember, so Xerxes was coming back from Greece on a military campaign. He got on a ship with his troops and subjects. They're going back to Iran after the, the thing in Greece. But they ran into a fierce storm. It's, this is a true story. They ran into a, a fierce storm at sea. The ship captain goes to the king. He's a little nervous. He says to the king, we're in a heap of trouble. Uh, he said, we're going to go down unless we really dramatically lighten the load. Based on that, the king said this. It, it is on you, he said to his subjects, it is on you that my safety depends. Now let some of you show your regard for your king. They knew what he was asking them to do. Many threw themselves overboard. Could I tell you something? <coughs> your God, mine, if you're a Christian, will never say something like, my safety depends on you. Instead, he has demonstrated, your safety depends on me. And our God will never say, I need you to throw yourself overboard for me. Instead, he's actively and intensely involved in trying to persuade us. He's already gone overboard to rescue us. It's entirely different. The only legitimate biblical motivation is to obey God as a thank you for going overboard in loving the most unlovely people on earth, you and me. Look in the mirror. Corrupted by sin. And yet God sacrificed himself to redeem one such as us. The only proper motivation, this is not my words, it says this, for the love of Christ, that means his love towards us, for the love of Christ constrains us. It's not the law of God anymore. It's not the law of the land. No, 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 that's not what constrains us. It's the love of Christ. It's been birthed in us by virtue of new birth. It's been birthed in us by virtue of the presence of God's very spirit in us. The only proper motivation for doing what God is pleased with, what he wants us to do, is to say, thank you, God. Thank you for going overboard for me. Listen, my fellow brothers and sisters, may you and I find the proper motivation for doing what God wants us to do in this increasingly desperate and unsettling world. May people out there see what motivates us in here. It's not some code of ethics. It's not some religious behavior. 
It's not mechanic, some mechanical robot-like, yes, sir, no, sir. It's, oh, God, did I forget your birthday? I'll never do it again. I love you too much to let that happen again. That's the only legitimate motive for those who are in. Listen, I bet we memorized Romans 8, the first part, verse 1. Can you say it with me? Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For who? For those in Christ. Are you in Christ Jesus? Romans 8, 1 is for you. Are you not in Christ Jesus? The Connection Center is for you. Go there. We'll pray. Go there. Let us help you get connected to Christ Jesus, disconnected from Adam. Connection to Adam, condemnation. Connection to Christ Jesus, acquittal. Wouldn't you want to leave as a free, pardoned one, enveloped now in a love relationship, not the law of God, the love of God, to such extent that he will never let you go. Join us in the next few minutes, please, in the Connection Center. Lord Jesus, how are we doing in understanding all these things? We're not so hot at it. You understand, Lord, it's new to us. We don't operate this way. We operate based on rewards and punishments and working and what we deserve, what we don't deserve and all that. And You've really upset the apple cart. It is this thing called grace. That is just... You are not playing by the rules at all. You are not giving us what we deserve. You're giving us what we don't deserve. That's grace. It's mercy. You understand, Lord, these, there's a learning curve for us. We've got to grow into this. Romans 8 is tough to swallow. Oh, God, put a taste in our mouth for your amazing grace so that the motivation is us responding to what you've done in us. Thereby you get the glory, not a church, not a denomination, not willpower, not any of that. Oh, God, if we respond to what you have already done in us, you get the glory. Help us to be properly motivated, joyously following you, joyously obeying, not grudgingly, oh, God. Help us, we who are saved by grace, now to be sanctified by just as much grace by virtue of your indwelling Holy Spirit in our life. Oh, God, help us, help us to be an environment in which your Spirit in us is free to operate. Oh, God, help us to rule out self-condemnation when, in fact, there is the pronouncement of no condemnation from you for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And, Lord, you've said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Free! to serve you, free to submit to you, not as a have to, but as a want to. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us in such fashion that it's a love that will not let us go. Now help us to respond accordingly. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.